FASWA is a podcast about Bigfoot. It's recorded for the skeptics, the believers, the knowers, and those who just have a casual interest in the subject. For more information, visit saswhat.com. Hey guys, this is Seth Breedlove. Um, this week's episode of Sass What, I am talking with Gene St. Jean of Creature Replica, which is an awesome uh, cryptid toy line. So last week they were supposed to be on the show. We actually recorded an interview and then I botched the audio and we ended up losing the entire show. So uh, this week it's just me and Gene talking about Bigfoot and their toy line. And it's a really cool interview and a great uh just conversation about Bigfoot. So check it out and uh, make sure you guys check out their toy line, Creature Replica. It's online. Peace. Hey, man. Hey, how are you? Uh, too bad. Got a little cardio from the driveway this morning. <laughs> oh, yeah. Feeling uh, refreshed. Yeah, I would bet. How, how do I sound? Sound perfect. Okay, good. All right. Um, Mark isn't coming. Okay. At least it's starting to seem that way. And uh, Jeff told me he's he's got a thing, so okay, it's just us. So um, I'm not gonna make this super professional. I'm kind of just gonna make it a conversation. That sounds good to me, man. Since we already kind of did this, and yeah, we had a couple of just <laughs> rehearsals. <laughs> yeah, we had our rehearsal already. Exactly. So um, you and I uh, have talked. A little, I I said I don't want to be like. <laughs> I said I don't want to be professional or whatever, and then I just so Gene, um, you you and I kind of uh, hooked up online because of uh, like many things the BFS I think right I mean that was kind of that was sort of I think our common commonality initially because I remember you had uh, Brian had um, mentioned you a couple times on the show when you were originally just posting questions and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And I think that was kind of problem when I was that show initially, sure. Okay. What got you, I mean, how did you discover that show? Well, actually, um, the, when I got back into this subject heavily a few years ago, the first thing I ran across was that old show that Kathy Strain used to do with some folks called uh, Let's Talk Bigfoot. Yes. And it was a really great show, and it ran the gambit of you know, like biological creature kind of stuff, historical stuff. She inter- she interviewed some lady that did uh, wrote a book on mythology surrounding um, fossils that were found in North America and the mythology the Native Americans created around them and, thing- and all sorts of things, and even into the crazy stuff. And so that was sort of the jumping off point. And after I had listened to all those episodes, <coughs> then I also found uh, – old show the the bipcast yeah and there was only like half a dozen of those so i blew through those and then he had started the other show so i started listening to them and um i liked it a lot but they tended to get off track a lot which sometimes was good because it was an entertaining show but 
you know, really there was so little talk about Bigfoot on it unless Tim and Scott got into a tiff about uh, kill, no kill or the validity of the, the PGF. <laughs> and then those would just be, then the show would just go, you know, down the, down the drain because it would just, you know, kind of circle, you right. know, nowhere's, but, uh, but really fun show. Yeah. And, um, then from that point, I followed a lot of the other Bigfoot shows, which tended to be discussions about hoaxers. And it seemed like everyone had a show and they had nothing really to talk about except for drama and hoaxers. So I tuned out on almost everything except for Brian's show until he ended it. And then you and Mark started this show. Mm-hmm. And what I like about what you guys do, you'd get in and out in like half an hour and you'd talk about a very specific thing. <clears throat> and one of the things I always wished is that there was more of these Bigfoot kind of uh, classic stories, kind of like books on tape, so I could just review the stuff and it entertained me while I worked. Yeah. And that's sort of what you guys did. And especially the problem with your show was like you'd be in and out in like half an hour. And I was like, all right, now what do I now what I put on for entertainment. Yeah. So, um, so I like the longer format, but, uh, yeah, so that's kind of how you and I kind of hooked up in a roundabout way. And I remember, <clears throat> I remember trading a couple of messages with you on Facebook, I guess, pertaining to your show it was probably just me dropping you a message to suck up. Cause I like the show <laughs> other than that, you know, I guess it was the Brian show. I was, yeah, I was pumped too because we were both at OBC uh, mm. last year. So I remember I was looking forward to that, despite the fact that like we were premiering the movie. I was pumped. I was I was actually I think slightly more pumped to hang out and uh, get a chance to meet you. So um, it's cool too because I think we're both similar in some ways to our approach. So it's like this is something we didn't talk about when we recorded when we recorded the show that other time, uh, but. The the typical, I think, um, and in fact, I was just reading an article that, that cemented this for me. Typically, the, the, the way people think of people that are into Bigfoot is, I mean, it's kind of only one way. It's, it's pretty much they're seen as the people that go out in the woods who are wearing like camo or like leather and they're, and they're like, you know, looking for Bigfoot. But I think there's this. Obviously, I think the majority of people who are into Bigfoot probably don't go to conferences, probably don't go out in the woods looking for Bigfoot. Like, I think it's this contingent of people that I would lump myself into, which is more like the people who are into it for reasons other than, like, super... I don't even know how to word this right without sounding like a prick. Like, Like, I take the subject seriously, obviously, but, I mean, like, people who are into it because they're just fascinated by the idea, not necessarily. I think kind of what you're getting at is exactly the way I view it. There is a contingent of people that have an intense interest in it, like you and I do and Mark do. And then there's that next level of intensity, which is almost a religious zeal, Mm -hmm. where they will argue any insupportable, uh, concept if that's you know the thing they believe in to the death when there's nothing to support any of this it's all speculation and i don't have a problem with anybody's 
particular theories per se, because I'm, I don't have a problem with supernatural stuff. I just don't think it pertains to this. But again, that's my opinion. Sure. I really carry the way, but uh, <laughs> I think that's the big difference you're talking about. The people that go out into the woods um, and on the extreme side, every single every single knock and bonk in the woods and wrestle is a Bigfoot. I mean, that's the that's the typical uh, perception. And there's the people that go out there. You and I both know a lot of them who are very analytical. Mm-hmm. They don't look for every you know every little clump of. Um, uh, like moss or something is a tuft of hair and you know they're just a little more scientific about it as much as you can be without being a scientist and then i consider myself an armchair researcher i love to read about the topic to a degree i like to interact a little in some of the facebook groups but even that it gets a little too a little too over the top mm-hmm. when every picture there's a creature in it and People argue you to the ground about how they they have to be human and they have to be this and have to be that. And it's like, I just, you know, I don't see anything supporting any of it either one way or another. You know, so I sort of stay out of those conversations. I really enjoy the topic, but I think in order to continue enjoying it, you have to sort of have some fun with it. Because until I can go to the Bronx Zoo and see one of these things through like four inches of safety glass or see one dissected by science or something that I can say, okay, that film looks as realistic to me as a film of a gorilla at the zoo. You know, then once there's actual data, then I can kind of start to look at theories, but I just, I just can't buy into it. You know, like I said, I'm a spiritual person. I believe in supernatural things, but I just don't think that that pertains to this. And that's my opinion. That's, but. Yeah, that's eloquently put because that's exactly how I feel about it. Like mm-hmm. I, I'm, you know, obviously I'm quote unquote religious. I hate the word religious, but so, right. so I believe that's, I believe in spiritual things and, and all that stuff, too. And, mm-hmm. and I had this uh, almost uh, dude like last week at church. Some guy came up to me and tried to pitch me his theory that like Bigfoot is somehow connected to Satan and all this stuff. And I'm just yeah, like, you know, I, I, I feel like that's a really quick way to try to explain everything away. And like I've said from the start, like I just feel like there's no pat easy answer to it. Other than if there is a pat easy answer to it, in my opinion, it's gotta be that there's some sort of undiscovered species. Like that's yeah. just how, if you're going to explain it away with one thing that to me makes the most sense. Yeah. Here's an interesting vamp on that idea of, that the guy brought to you at church, though, mm-hmm. is if you look at um, the, the earlier settlers and like the more puritanical view on, um, you know, the Christian faith and things, they believed in witchcraft and all sorts of nature things that were against their religion. And in their description, they referred to the devil as the the black man of the forest. Mm-hmm. They considered him like kind of a hairy goat man type thing. So if you want to really go out on a limb, you could say if they had any sightings, essentially they would consider having seen, you know, the devil in an earthly guise yeah. wandering through the forest. So it's an interesting, man. Not that I want to encourage that line of thinking. No, but... but 
playing devil's advocate, if you will. <laughs> oh God. Uh, anyway, so um, I I do love I I love the exp- and and I think Mark and I have talked about this recently, but I think I've I'm I'm not I got to think of the right way to say this. I'm not necessarily um, saying that I believe one way or the other, but I'm I love the idea I love the idea of like UFOs and Bigfoot. I'm, I'm not saying that that I think they're connected, but I do find it fascinating that so many of the sightings that I and and again, like I've said this before, let me see if I can actually follow a train of thought this episode. But um, I've said this before, but like I don't think it's the majority of cases. Like you'll hear people throw that around. Like you know, why is it every time someone sees a Bigfoot, they see a UFO? Well, that's not at all the case. But I think right. it's funny that. Uh, Whitehall and Minerva both have like major UFO flaps connected to them, and I mean, if I could have, I, I would have loved to explore that in the movie too, and especially in Whitehall because Paul Bartholomew has done tons of research on that, and he has so much information. Like, we probably have, and it's going to be on the DVD, but we we recorded probably an hour of just him talking about the UFO angle mm-hmm. to it. So eventually, I've got to do something with that the problem is like our approach to the movies doesn't necessarily invite ufos into the mix unless i can find a way to do it that just flows seamlessly and and with that one like whitehall and the and the bigfoots and and ufos just it wasn't happening but i i like i'm really into the chestnut ridge stuff Mm -hmm. you know and like i don't know if you've read any of stan gordon's work uh a little bit of it Again, you know, it kind of starts to get into an area that I have a little more trouble, yeah. you know, um, putting in the same bag as Bigfoot. But, you know, I'm, but there, is, there does seem to be a correlation. But the problem is the same problem with most of this type of cryptid stuff and supernatural things is that 99% of it is unsupported eyewitness accounts. Yes. And... And how many of those are just manufactured accounts? This is when you've exactly. when you've got blogs that that make a living off of um, hits, you know, on posts that come to them from anonymous sources or or these kind of like you know no name sources. Is it, that that becomes really hard for me to swallow because you you have no way of double checking those stories. Yeah, exactly. I mean. They're, some of them are really great stories. I mean, there's various podcasts you could listen to that have, you know, dubious uh, support for what they do. I mean, and they're, some are fun to listen to, but a lot of them, they kind of have a, a groove they lay in. There are certain podcasts that like to uh, tell the scary Bigfoot stories, you know, the Bigfoot attack stuff. and And then other ones where... They seem to be completely. I mean, you you can see like every couple of months, there's a brand new Bigfoot personality who crops up out of nowhere, has some nifty sort of down home uh, moniker that he goes by. You know, some of the guys I'm talking about. And uh, not that there's anything wrong with that, but they pop up out of nowhere and they've had tons of sightings, not a single shred of support. And they build kind of a little cadre of followers very quickly. Mm-hmm. And I don't have a problem with that. I mean, it it's a little squirrely to me. 
and I don't put much, uh, I don't put much behind it, but you know, I don't really carry the way, but I think with too many of those type of things and some of the sillier TV programs, it basically, it causes the field to look even more ridiculous from the outside. And that's why, you know, as much as, you know, some of the scientific guys who've been involved in it and obviously have made some maybe poor associative choices in doing their projects, you know, thank God for people like Sykes and Meldrum that at least, you know, and even Kathy Strange, she's a person with a, a reputation too as a scientist. And those people are the only thing to hang your hat on. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the, I've talked to people I really think are legit, but that's just a gut feeling. And, you know, really, what's that worth in a scientific sense? You know, yeah. but, but I mean, in a backhanded way, as much as people like to um, put down some of the TV shows, especially Finding Bigfoot, the reality is, is what brings science to these to this type of thing, what brought Sykes to it. He probably has been harboring an interest in this nonsense for years, just didn't know how to put his toe in without destroying his reputation. The reason I think he was able to come to it, and even to a degree like guys like Meldrum, is because there's such an interest in it and there's so much money in it that if science can do something that will bring money to their um, – to their experimenting and research and things like that, then it's a reason for them to get involved, you know, in kind of a backhanded way. I mean, so you get something that's kind of a silly show, but there's tons of interest in it. And all of a sudden, some rich, nutty guys like, well, I'd lay it a quarter of a million dollars to have you guys go check this out. And why can't you come in and do some DNA research? I mean, think about, you know, what it took to pull uh Who's the guy from uh, <clears throat> Todd Disattel? Mm-hmm. He's a guy who actually, obviously is uh, an accredited genetics dude, has a good reputation. He obviously has a tangential interest in this stuff. And the reason he got even further into it, I think, to do that show is because there's money involved and brought more interest into the field that he works in, into his research. So it's, you know... There's a positive wrapped in a negative. Yeah. So you have to take it, you know, that's interest. Public interest is what brings money in commercially, I think. And that brings in everything else with it. So I think you have to take the good with the bad. Yeah. I mean, I agree. I think I agree to a point. Like, I also think that, I don't know. I, I see, I always think about my wife's grandpa because this guy is like an avid outdoorsman. He's, you know, he like he actually owns a cabin down by Salt Fork, um, and he spent his whole life like hunting and stuff outdoors. And he has a moderate interest in in the subject. He doesn't think there's anything to it, but he's he's intrigued by it. But it's also like a laughing stock to him because of shows, and, and it's literally because of finding Bigfoot and mountain monsters. Right. Like it's not, it's not just that he's, and I'm sure he's not indicative of everyone, but like, um, I just think of guys like him and then people even like me and, you know, I, I, I do think though I can track my, my getting into all this, at least in part to monster quest, which some argue is like a hokey show, but I think monster quest is leaps and bounds better than anything that's 
related to cryptozoology that's on TV today. So I just wonder, like, how much of that stuff just absolutely kills it for some people. Like, that's why I do what I do in a way is to see if, like, well, maybe maybe there's a huge contingent of people who are into this. Like, huge. Because I talk to, I mean, just, just at a guess, like, on my Facebook friends, friends list, anyone who is not related to Bigfoot... I, I swear, like, 50% of these people have still messaged me or, or, or something at some point to ask me a question or to tell me they're... I've always been kind of interested in this, but, I you know, I, I've never gotten into it like you have. I just wonder what the numbers are. Like, how many of these people are do have an interest in it but shy away because of how ridiculous some of this is or seems, you know? Yeah, and I'm sure there's probably a fair amount, you know. It's like, uh, as a... a Fairly decent example. Every year, uh, my brother goes out to San Diego with me. And he usually sleeps over the night before, so usually he grabs a book out of my second bedroom to take with him on the plane. So last year, I think it was, he grabbed uh, one of Lauren Coleman's Bigfoot books. And he read it on the plane, or most of it. And, you know, I talk about this stuff all the time. He thinks, you know, he likes all the comic book stuff. He thinks the Bigfoot thing is just completely idiotic <laughs> for all the reasons people always state. Yeah. And uh, and he found it really interesting, you know, to actually. And I like Lauren's books, too. They're a good, con- they're a good primer, kind of get-you-in-the-door type books. But <clears throat> the thing I think that would draw in the people you're talking about that are on the bubble that find it kind of interesting and then they go into a Bigfoot forum on Facebook and they're like, this is ridiculous. And <clears throat> I think what would draw them in more is um, over the last few months, I've gotten more interested in um, reading books about anthropology and the kind of like the breakdown of potentially what was human lineage when apes and Homo sapiens split off way, way back when we had a common arboreal ancestor. Mm-hmm. And um, all the different variations in those lines, like the difference between, you know, us, obviously Australopithecines like Lucy, who was found <laughs> in the 70s or whatever, and uh, how there was one version of Australopithecus that had more of a humanish body and more of an apish skull. And another version that had more of an apish body and more of a humanish skull. And all sorts of variations in between, before and after, and offshoots that dead-ended. And, um, you know, if you subscribe to that. And, you know, as you read those books, you realize science doesn't even agree amongst itself on how any of that stuff played out anyway. Every time they find a new finger bone, everything changes. Sure. But when you read that stuff... You can see the possibility how something like this could have just been, you know, somehow survived out in the middle of nowhere and, you know, might still exist. Because there's certainly precursors along those lines, any one of which could describe a creature like this. And I think if if things were played in that light, a lot more people would come to it with kind of interest. Because even when I talk to people about, you know, I know the gigantopithecus theories you know it's kind of fringe in its own way because you know there's a lot of problems with it Mm -hmm. but most people don't even believe that there's a theoretical ape 
that is similar to this that actually did exist and it existed for a long time. Mm -hmm. It, you know, basically I think the thing was around for a hundred thousand years or something like that, at least numbers, probably not right, but it was a long freaking time. And sometimes I talk to people about this stuff. And as I'm in the middle of my insane, you know, monologue, I get to that. And all of a sudden their eyes are not glazed over and they're like, what are you talking about? And I start to describe the thing about them finding the teeth in the Chinese apothecary. And <clears throat> most of the animal is a projection based off of thousands of teeth and partial jaw bones. But this is, you know, the theoretical reconstruction of what it would be. And all of a sudden, just the fact that there was a 10 to 12 foot ape existing at some point in history freaks them out. Because, you know, you look at it and it's like, okay, well, I've heard that there were like 15 to 20 foot ground sloths. Because you can see the skeleton at the Museum of Natural History in the city. And mastodons and all these different things. But all of a sudden it never occurred to him that there was like super giant apes or, you know, what's the other crazy one? What was the uh, (laughs) lemurs? This in Madagascar in, you know, the megafauna era. There was lemurs the size of gorillas, literally like the size of a freaking gorilla. Isn't isn't the lemur somehow connected to Ketchum's study? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's why. Along with the angel, it's probably where she uh, probably where she got that from. The problem, of course, that's an island, and how do those propagate anywhere outside of an island? Because I they, they it, swim, I Gene. Think. Come on. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, there, there were those stories that Mark was talking about one of your other shows yeah. where they sort of swim like a Olympic swimmer oh, yeah. underwater. <clears throat> I love those stories. Yeah, me too. So there's there's a lot of really interesting inroads that could bring people in who are just on the cusp of this stuff. You know, being interested in it because I was like, yeah, I like science fiction. I like this stuff. And the Bigfoot thing's kind of neat. I remember the $6 million man fighting Bigfoot. But that next step to take them into a serious interest in it would have to relate to something a little more grounded. And, you know, unfortunately, the the community in a lot of ways, I met some people that are really interested in (coughs) some of these things that are really dig into it. But um, most of the time you jump into these groups and it is just arguments about nonsense that you couldn't possibly you couldn't possibly prove either one way or another without an in-depth biological survey and, you know, but that's the way it is. It's opinion. And like we've heard some guys we know talk about is, uh, once one of these creatures is found and described an awful lot of this other nonsense is going to fall by the wayside. And I think a lot of the people that propagate the real crazy stuff, that's what they're afraid of. Because, you know, the guys with the portals and the mind speak and all that, once we have a real animal, their whole gig is oh, up. Oh, yeah. Well, oh, that, like, that that brings me to a question. Like, I'm always curious to hear what people who are into this um, kind of where they stand on that. Because, like, let's say tomorrow someone bagged a Bigfoot and it was proven to exist. <clears throat> are you... And be honest, like, I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but like, would you want, do you want the mystery solved? Like, how do you feel about it? Oh, I definitely do. Cause I think the, I think the only 
the mystery begins when they find one is, you know, determining the genetic roots of the creature. Where does it fall within the evolutionary line? Does it fall along the primate line? Is that the next stage in evolution for monkeys and apes? Or is he somewheres a strange little dead-ended offshoot of the, uh, you know, like the Homo erectus, Homo erectus, Homo sapiens, sapien line? You know, where does he fall within that? How much of the folklore and modern kind of observations, alleged observations, how much of that does it really apply to this creature? I mean, I think that the the real investigation begins once the creature's found. You know, how do you how do we put a tracker on them or cameras within a, an encampment so that we can study what do they do? What is there? Do they have society? Anything beyond a chimp or a gorilla? You know, even to go back to some of the evolution stuff I've been studying, they've found more and more in these early hominid lines that there was tool use, even way back into early Australopithecines, before they thought they were actually um, shaping, not just taking sticks to like eat ants out of anthills like chimps will do, but they were actually custom kind of grinding bones down to do things like that. There was some rudimentary tool use. And is there anything like that amongst these creatures? Because just because we can't find evidence of it, other than some of the uh, NAWAC stuff where they've found what seemed to be like uh, like nutcracking stations with rocks and things like that, stuff that like chimps will do and, you know, I mean... <laughs> How much of that applies? Where do they fall within that? There's, there's so much to be learned from it. And what are the, you know, we since the '60s or '70s, there's been debate over the samurai chatter thing. Yeah, you know, do they actually speak? Do they have a language? I mean, you can make the case that there are animals with language, like dolphins. You know, uh, primates obviously communicate. All animals communicate in some way or another. You know, how much of that applies and how close is it to something that we would be able to interact with if we were able to kind of understand the type of, you know, diction they use? How do they, you know, what is, I mean, you can train, there's that, that famous uh, gorilla that communicates with the sign language that they always showed with, uh, what's his name, uh, the dude that killed himself, the comedian. Um <clears throat> See, I'm thinking of the the gorilla from Congo. So I'm pretty sure you're not. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I remember. I, I worked on a job years and years ago. At my very first job, I had to I had to sculpt a gorilla, like a really crazy gorilla, for a little train set. And what they sent me for reference is they sent a bunch of those yes. boys. <laughs> From that movie, <laughs> and all the crazy multicolored painted gorillas with the uh, mohawks, and you know, they're like, "Well, we want you to do a gorilla, and here's some reference." And I was like, uh, "Do you ever go to the zoo? <laughs> it's not quite a gorilla." So what I did is, I sculpted kind of a bipedalish gorilla and gave him sort of werewolfy hands with claws and made him like screaming. 
And <laughs> but it was funny that you bring that up because that was for I think of that sometimes too. I only actually saw the movie about a year ago. Oh my god, I, I saw that three times in theaters because I was a huge Michael Crichton fan when I was mm-hmm. a kid, and I read Congo many mm-hmm. times. But yeah. it's yeah, it's but. it's not a great movie, but but. Uh, I do remember my family kind of obsessing over it for some reason and going to see it many times. That could be where this all stems from, honestly, because I don't, you know, I've never, I was never interested in primates as a kid. I wasn't Mm -hmm. into, you know, that wasn't like an animal that fascinated me. And I grew up spending a ton of times, a ton of time in the woods behind my, uh, my parents' house. And I was never out there, you know, banging on trees or trying to hear, you know, weird cries in the woods. Although, you know, as you, now that I'm into this, I do remember hearing things uh, Mm -hmm. when I was a kid back there, but it wasn't like something where like, I can't point to being a kid and being really fascinated by Bigfoot. That didn't happen until I was in my early twenties. So I don't know. I don't know about you. How, when did you get into all this? I was in about sixth grade. Cause I, um, we, I was always really into Planet of the Apes, things like that. I loved those movies. And then I, um, we had these little reading magazines in the back. And one of, them, one of them had a little article on John Chambers doing the Planet of the Apes makeup. And it showed him actually applying it. And that like sucked me in. And then they had one with one of those famous underwater pictures of Nessie that as we know today were completely doctored to make it look like dorsal fins and stuff. So I I was fascinated by that. And then there was one where the cover shot was the famous frame from the PGF. And I remember reading that story and just the hair on the back of my neck going up like, Oh my God, there are like eight foot apes in America where there are no known monkeys and apes in North America and this thing could be out there. And that was just at the time, this is during the 70s, it was just starting to catch on again with like In Search Of and then they put him on the $6 million man. And I remember being so disappointed with the way he was portrayed on the $6 million man because he just looked like a guy in a bear suit with an afro and a beard <laughs> and, and gray contacts. It was just, I was so let down. But I was very into it. And then I was reading like um, different magazines like Argosy. They did an article on that. Chimp Oliver, who I think think he lived until recently, really old. He was trained so he could, you know, walk on two feet. And uh, he smoked cigarettes and stuff. Wow. Rebel. but, But what sucked me into the magazine is the way they photographed him. It was really grainy. And he looked like he had like pointed ears and I was like, wow, this is like some kind of real monster. And I believed everything in that magazine. So there was so much stuff to support it. And I, you know, would pick up books and pamphlets and read all that stuff. And I do, I do miss that. I I, I hate to cut you off, but like, I do miss that about first getting into the subject and just being blown away by all these like facts about Bigfoot that you find. And I remember I would be, I would you know, I'd have conversations with my dad about it, and and you're just like, did, did, but did you know this? Like, this could be why they actually exist, kind of stuff. I miss that because now I feel like I'm a a skeptical jackass. You know, who <laughs> everything I kind of shoot down. I don't have that anymore. Like, I don't have that. This is why they could actually be out there. 
kind of that innocent wonder yes. is gone after a certain point. Yeah. yeah, but I think I don't think that's a bad th- thing though. If you replace it with a genuine interest that's more analytical, mm-hmm. because there is a lot, there is a lot to really sink your teeth into. Yeah. But the problem is, is that you have to wade through a morass of garbage to get there. Yeah. You know, it's 95% of what out, what's out there is distracting and at its very best, pure entertainment. Mm-hmm. At its worst, <clears throat> just complete claptrap. And I think if you can wade through all those things and the problem... The problem with it is, is the stuff that I find the most engaging are books that were written in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. You know, like I, I picked up a few really good book references from the Bigfoot show. They talked about uh, Rain the Klamath Knot, which is pretty interesting. Not so much a Bigfoot book, but kind of a spiritual thing, whatever. Mm. Uh, the John Napier's uh, Bigfoot and Yeti and in Myth and Reality um, Abominable Snowmen Come to Life by Ivan Sanderson. Books like that. Oh, and uh, the other one they mentioned a lot was uh, Raincoast Sasquatch. Uh, that's and, that's what I was just going to say. Yeah, yeah. That was one of the ones Brian mentioned too. And I actually – I sent him a message on that because I was reading. They found – supposedly found like areas – in that book they mentioned areas that looked like – almost like gorilla nesting sites. So I immediately typed to him. I was like, have you guys found any of this? <laughs> you know? And he was like, well, no, we found something that kind of looked like someplace where creatures might've been laying down, but you couldn't say definitively. And so essentially most of the things that I find most engaging are the oldest of those books. Sanderson's book. I've probably read three times. And the reason is, I mean, I remember when you and Mark had had a conversation about it, you had mentioned how the idea that these things proliferate around the globe makes it less believable than more believable because it means that all of them are somehow able to avoid detection completely. And that I do agree with that to a point. But when I read his book, the way I felt is (laughs) – I can believe these creatures exist in deep areas of South America, in deep areas of Africa, wherever, mm-hmm. maybe not so much Europe and things like that. But, you know, in remote regions, oh, I think gosh, America you're, you're going to get me in so much trouble for that Europe comment. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Well, <laughs> I, I pretty much say whatever, you know, but uh, but the um, America to me is the least believable place, North America. You know, and mainly because there's there's no fossil record mm-hmm. for primates in America, <laughs> and uh, everything here is based on folklore, and you know the footprint data seems to be the strongest thing. No one seems to have nailed anything down that definitively is like this is a hair that is some sort of primate hair, whatever. After reading Sykes' book, basically. He's definitely yay Bigfoot, just to him from the things that he analyzed. And he breaks it down very specifically that the evidence that he's analyzed hasn't pointed towards a creature. But that's just because this is what he's analyzed. He's not excluding the possibility. And uh, 
he said one of the things that one of the things that always seems to bother him is that whenever something is um, described genetically as unknown, it's from an unknown creature. Immediately, that jumps to you know some sort of uh, cryptid creature, mm-hmm. and he said that's not the case. It just means that the material is too degraded to pin it down. And that means it points in no particular direction. So I like his sort of um, objective purview on the subject, you know. But like I said, you know, I can believe in the things existing in Sumatra, in South America. Here it's a little tougher to believe. But we do have the wilderness. And even in Napier's book, he was a primatologist. He... He tried to come at it objectively, too, and he analyzed things the same way that Sanderson did in terms of food stores, um, environment, the amount of the amount of square miles you need for one creature that size to survive on the available food source, things like that. And he couldn't completely exclude it either. At the end of his book, he basically was like, you know, he couldn't believe it would exist. But I don't know. I think there's enough in the subject <laughs> to make it really fascinating to study. But like I said, you have to sift through the nonsense that could distract you or just drive you away from it. Because if you spent too much time in any of the forums, you would just be shouted out of them because maybe you just don't agree with someone or they have evidence that they're not going to show you mm-hmm. because, you know, I've, I've had people say that to me. You know, they argue with me. It's like, well, you know, if you were in the know, you know, we actually have these photos. And I was like, it's like, sounds good to me. But, you know, if you have them, you share them, right? You know, I'm not obliged to just believe. Sure. Top my head. And, and I'm nobody. I mean, they don't have to prove anything to me. Yeah. But I think that it's, it's a detriment to the existence of, of the further existence of the creatures if they're out there to hold that type of evidence because, you know, like we've heard other people we follow talk about, their environment's getting chewed up by industry and pollution and things. And if they're worried about saving an owl, if we have the last of a rare species of megafauna primate left in this country, it's got to be on the edge of extinction. Mm-hmm. Something should be done to protect it. You know, unfortunately, conservation requires a phenotype for science to study before that's ever going to happen. You know, that's the sad truth of it. I hate the idea that people go out and kill deer. I don't have a problem with hunting. If you go out and you shoot a deer and then you cut it all up and you put it in a freezer because you're going to eat it, I'm fine with that. But trophy hunting, I don't agree with. But to describe a species to... Um, potentially save it from disappearing forever. I think that that's a noble cause. Wow, you you answered a question for me without me even needing to bring it up. Um, okay, so we've already gone through. We got like twenty minutes left in the show, and we haven't even talked about creature replica. So we need to do that. Um, so you guys got we we've already talked about this, obviously. So I'm going to try to do this to make it feel natural. Um, what what was it that got you and Jeff Byers together and, and tell us, first of all, tell us about creature replica, what it is, and then tell us who Jeff is. Cause he was supposed to be here. No, yeah. He's not, Mark's not, they're just too cool for us. 
Um, well, uh, first, your voice is a little crackly. Is that going to come across on your recording? Uh, we should be good. It's pulling. Okay. It, it's pulling my audio from directly from my mic. Okay. So, uh, well, what happened initially is um, I've always kind of wanted to pursue this type of thing. I've pitched it to a few companies I've worked with. Nobody's nobody's really interested in doing things that are not tied to a major movie property or a TV show, basically a license that already has a track record for making money. So any ideas I had just sort of lame fallow. So Jeff kind of came along after I had um, done that statue with Lyle. It was kind of this weird synchronicity. I had, I had read Lyle's book, sent him a message, told him I really dug his book and all this. And we talked about it. So we ended up doing that statue together a few months later, one of my friends calls me up because he was working with Jeff and said that the guy wanted someone to work on Bigfoot stuff. And I was like, well, he said, you don't have to tell me anymore. Just send the guy my phone number. Have him call me. I'm really interested. So <clears throat> he called me up and kind of described uh, what he'd like to do. And I said, well, I said, I've always wanted to do that. So um, we started putting together the first line, which originally was going to be all relic hominid slash mystery primates, you know, Bigfoot, Sasquatch, uh, I mean, well, Sasquatch, the Yeti, there was going to be a Yowie and a Rang Pendek. As we got into the, the actual dollars and cents of it, <clears throat> and he already had a pre-existing arrangement with Horror Hound magazine to produce their mascot, which is like this zombie werewolf type creature. We realized that rather than doing a four-figure line and then a fifth figure adds an awful lot of expense to our initial idea. So we figured, well, roll the horror hound into the line. And Jeff had the idea of also doing the Rougarou, which is basically a Louisiana werewolf sort of based more out of witchcraft and curses than, you know, traditional kind of bites and scratches to transmit the lycanthropy disease. Mm -hmm. And we were able to use some common parts between the two werewolves to save some steel tooling costs. So essentially it became a four-figure line, two mystery primates, and two lycanthropes. And the as, it, as things kind of hashed out, the other guy who was involved didn't really work out. And I kind of ended up kind of finishing up the work he had started. And it... Rather than me sort of being a vendor on the job, which I do for all these other companies, I've kind of ended up being more of a partner in the organization, kind of driving the majority of the aesthetic stuff, you know, with Jeff. So um, we sort of expanded on that, and he found two other, two other guys who were interested in investing in it and participating, Nick Epley and Craig Deere. So it's basically a four-man operation that does everything literally from soup to nuts. And I had a friend of mine on the first series, uh, John Santagata, who I worked with at DC Direct and Mezco to assist us on a lot of the factory QC kind of things. So, um, <clears throat> But essentially, it's a four-man four -man band doing everything literally. Like weekends, those guys are at the warehouse packing up orders to ship out. So you know, it's, it's very hands-on. You have, 
I'm going to do this from memory. Last time I had a page pulled up, but there's there's a Sasquatch, there's a Yeti, there's Horror Hound, and then the Rougarou, right? So those are mm-hmm. the four in Series 1. And yeah. <clears throat> we talked uh, before, but like the, the size of these things is something I love because they're big and bulky and there's a little bit of weight to them. Um, they feel more substantial, I think, than typical like little toys too. So, and the packaging is awesome. So, like, what I mean, obviously, you're extremely, you know, you're saying you're only a four man operation, but like, you're obviously kind of helping in some capacity on almost every level. Would that be fair to say? Like with design and all that stuff. Yeah, there's yeah, there's a lot of cross bleed between all of our jobs, really. Like. Um, me and Jeff kind of throw a lot of stuff back and forth as far as the design and the aesthetic things. You know, I do I do all the sculpting type work. I do majority of the painting, and Jeff has done some of the painting on some of the repaint things we're doing also. And as far as the creature design, that's mostly mine with, you know, some batting back and forth with Jeff. The packaging, like Jeff designed the logo designed the look of the packaging the back of the package we kind of jammed on i did some sketches of like um sort of like native masks that i snuck in here and there and kind of did a stylized vamp on the hairy man pictograph that i hid down in the corner of the package and so we just sort of back and forth on what we thought would work and then we take turns kind of writing copy like jeff wrote the copy for the back of the package we took turns writing copy for the website. He's working with a friend of his, um, constantly revamping the website. So we kind of do a little bit of everything. And the majority of the aesthetic and design is between me and him kind of kicking that back and forth. And Nick and Craig, they're specializing in more of the legal stuff, doing the copywriting the logistics of getting the product from the factory to customs here through all the customs nonsense we had to go through getting it shipped to the warehouse, working out like who's the best shipper to bring it from California to the warehouse in, you know, Illinois, you know, stuff like that. So everyone kind of has their specialty, but there's definitely bleed bleed over here and there. And then, the other guys also, they go to all the shows. Like Jeff does a lot of the shows because I can't always get away. And the other two guys, they're going to be doing some of the shows because like this year they're doing C2E2, which falls on the same weekend as Horror Hound. So Jeff will be doing Horror Hound in March mm-hmm. and me and Nick and Craig will be doing C2E2. C2E2 in is awesome. I, I do adore I, that show. Do, you've been to oh, it? Oh, yeah, yeah. I went as press about what was that about four or five years ago because I used to do like a comics podcast, so we got to go as press to a, a few of these shows, and that happened to be one of them. Yeah, I've never been to it, but for our first time there, we're going to be set up right across from Diamond Select Toys, so that's pretty cool. That's, so that's awesome. So, um, I don't know anything about making figures, but I, I have a hunch. It's like a, you, you basically sketch out an idea. Would that be right? And then you, I mean, walk us through actually making a figure. And then if you can like tie that into how, how much just your knowledge of the subject informs your design on like the Bigfoot and Yeti 
figures. Okay, and in this particular instance, there's there's a certain amount of it that comes out of my head, but mainly because there's so much so much conflicting information. But to look at the Bigfoot, obviously, like the number one piece of data that you have to look at is Patty, mm-hmm. and from a toy standpoint, to make a female Sasquatch figure, it it has a lot of problems. You know, you're aiming at predominantly a male audience. You're aiming at the possibility of putting the figure, hopefully, in a mass market store. So how do you deal with the issue of, you know, an, an ape woman figure with pendulous breasts kind of thing? Mm-hmm. So immediately you have to go to a male figure. You know, at least that's the way we talked about it. So a lot of the proportions and things were informed by that film. And then a lot of the other stuff, I mean, you can't tell as much as you do reconstructions on that film. You can, Bill Munn's work is fantastic and has probably brought me a lot closer to buying into its legitimacy. (laughs) But um, you really can't tell anything about the face. I've seen some really neat kind of sketchovers to speculate. But um, so I took a lot of witness reports and synthesized that into kind of the interpretation of the face. And I like the idea that the vast majority of accounts are of a very unassuming placid creature that would rather avoid you than come into conflict with you. You know, you know, putting aside the Native American accounts of cannibal giants and you know, wars with Bigfoot and things like that. And some of the scary campfire tale type Bigfoot stuff that's out there. That's what I really wanted to portray first and foremost is kind of a giant, a giant creature with the disposition more of a gorilla than a chimpanzee. But the other direction probably would, would be an easier sell, right? Like to a bloodthirsty, terrifying. Absolutely. Yeah. And the, that was one of the things, you know, luckily working with Jeff and these guys, they they um, kind of went along with what I really wanted to do because I hate, I hate all that sci-fi channel kind of killer Bigfoot stuff. Yeah. Because, again, if you look at it logically, when you look at stuff like killer Bigfoot and Dogman and all these things, if there was an eight-foot killer primate in the United States – they would either be wiped out, so we'd have to know about that, or we'd be wiped out because they would be the top of the food chain. And unless you want to make that jump into missing 411 and Sasquatches or kidnapping people and killing them and eating them or whatever, yeah. which I'm not ready to do, I think you have to look at it as, okay, this is something that's kind of akin to a black bear. If you get too close to them, you're probably going to be in trouble Generally speaking, they see you, they want out. You know, they don't want anything to do with you. And uh, so a lot of that stuff in terms of uh, speculative personality, uh, projected anatomy, and, you know, things that I would kind of build on witness reports to create the creature's features and, um, you know, the build and everything. It was really important to get the the uh, intermembral body index, similar to Patty, you know, the length of the arms as compared to the ratio of the arm length to the ratio of the leg length, you know, um, things that really make it look like 
what people would picture a Sasquatch to be. There's enough of a pop culture <laughs> um, similarity to sell it. And it was, this, it was even more so with the Yeti because the vast majority of Yeti sightings tended to be of a dark or a red-haired creature, more like an orangutan. There's, you know, three different, three different types of uh, yetis that are described. One is the zute, which is pretty much like the one we did, a giant nine or ten foot monster. There is a smaller one. The more common one is called uh, the mate, which is more like five, six feet tall, kind of has an orangutan colored fur or brown fur. They're the ones that you would hear about always kind of attacking like flocks of yaks or whatever they you know, they heard up there. And uh, then there's kind of one, uh, there's another one, I can't remember the name of it, but it's more of in the range of a varang pendek, a little one, you know, three, four feet tall. So there's three different, basically, sort of species. And the uh, idea behind it that I tried to follow is some of the earlier expeditions tended to focus up in to the ice fields and the mountains, like the Peter Byrne expeditions for Tom Slick. Like there was, I think at one point Byrne had spent like three years up in the mountains with his brother living in ice caves and they had found some footprints here and there. And of course you can go back to the, the Shipton print, which is the one that I based the foot morphology of the Yeti on where you have the divergent big toe like a gorilla or some other sort of arboreal primate, there's three of the smaller toes grouped together, and then you have this strange, almost forefinger that would almost, you know, I mean, it could be anything. It could be snow melt. It could be, you know, composite of two other bare footprints. But the way it appears is almost like some sort of an animal that is in transition from an arboreal lifestyle into a terrestrial lifestyle and still has some of that opposable opposability of the thumb on the feet. And so I basically use that to inform that part of the anatomy. From that point, I just kind of went with the proportions of a crazy kind of pop culture driven monster. Yeah. You know, is the Yeti's almost never described as having white fur. That's a total pop culture, you know, uh, was that a Rudolph shiny new year <laughs> kind of, you know, creation, but it looks really cool. So when me and Jeff talked about it, he had some ideas about how to exaggerate the proportions, like the forearms and the hands. And, uh, we decided from that point, as much as we want to be true to witness reports, this one, at least our very first one has to stray in the opposite direction in order for it to make sense for anyone. You know, but for the most part, we really want to be mostly true to um, the uh, the material that's out there rather than just most things you see. I mean, that you have Bigfoot with like tusks and all sorts of crazy stuff and it just comes out of nowhere. You know, it's basically it's a toy designer sitting there. Oh, what would be a cool Bigfoot? Not reading anything, but it's just sort of, you know. Their art director saying, draw me a Bigfoot, yeah. does absolutely no research, either research on apes or research on Bigfoot or anything else, and they come up with that. So the idea from the beginning was, how do we do this in a legitimate way that 
people into the subject are going to appreciate, you know, that we've done our research, whether they agree with it or not. And I mean, I've gotten equal critiques on both sides. I've had people come up to me at the Ohio conference that looked at one of them and said, oh, that dark colored one looks exactly like what I saw. And then I've had Facebook battles with people that were telling me I was totally wrong. You know, (laughs) typical. Either way, it's fine. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, bring me a photograph. I'd be happy to have the reference, you know, and to see it. But, you know, so it's all the figures are informed one way or another, mostly with reports and things I've read about and filling in the gaps with some of my anthropological anthropological kind of readings and, you know. All right. I hate to do it. We're going to have to call it quits. Um, For sure, we're going to have to have you and uh, Jeff back on the show so we can talk more. Because I wanted to get to, like, where you can see the line going and and all that kind of stuff, too. But, um, Gene, where can people find the figures if they want to get them? And where can they find you guys online? Uh, Our website is Creature Replica, all one word, CreatureReplica.com. And you could buy the figures there. And... um, we're gradually expanding the site. I'll have a blog going on there eventually when we get the thing tooled up. Uh, there's also online stores like BigBadToyStore.com, Entertainment Earth, and that carry the toys. There's a bunch of others, too. I think I listed them on our Facebook page. Also, they're available through Diamond's, Diamond uh, Comic Distributors Previews Magazine at your comic shop. And you, you can find us on our Creature Replica Facebook page and my personal page and my studio page. So usually whenever we have something going on, we splatter it all over those pages so that as many people as possible see it. So Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on. We're going to have you back.